Welcome to Better Than Nothing. I'm Ken Root, a veteran of agricultural journalism. I grew up on an Oklahoma farm in the 1950s, attended Oklahoma State University for four and a half years, and graduated in 1972. I taught vocational agriculture for a brief period, and then I found my calling in radio and television farm news broadcasting. I've done other things along the way, but I've lived an exciting life that allowed me to make many friends. Better Than Nothing is my self-deprecating way of saying what you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. If you wish to comment on this podcast, send an email to ken at betterthannothing.com. Nothing is spelled N-U-T-H-I-N. If you're still here at the end, I'll give you that email address again. God bless you for giving this podcast a listen. So I took a job with American Cyanamid Company in Wayne, New Jersey. It was real close to the New York City metro area. Some people drove into New York City every day from there. And I found that I was working in public relations with American Cyanamid, and I didn't fit very well. Here I am, this broadcaster from Kansas who liked to tell stories, dealing with these very buttoned-down, highly polished shoes guys from New Jersey who were fine people, but they just had a different culture. So I was struggling within that when Bill Griffith, who was the head of crop protection chemicals, walked into the public relations department, my boss, David Butterfield, and I sitting there. And he said, I'm going to start a new organization. Bill, by the way, was a rodeo cowboy from Arizona who pretty much ran his part of the business like it was a ranch or like he was the boss of a ranch. And he said, I'm going to start a dealer organization of these ag chem dealers. I'm going to give them a million dollars and tell them to take care of their own damn problems. So that was the beginning of how this all came about. But I would have to say that during the next four years, I was in the trenches with some of the most amazing people I have ever known in my life. And one of them joins me today now. And remember, that was in 1988. And we are now in the year 2022. So there's been a sizable amount of water under the bridge since that time. But Jake Redmond from Bonaire, Georgia, has been a friend of mine since the first day I met him. Jake, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, Ken. How are you? Good. Now, you are retired Tell me a little bit of the pathway through your life, including the intersection of ours. Well, I taught uh, vocational agriculture for 12 years, and that's where I met a man uh, named Sonny Perdue, who was running a fertilizer and grain company, and he offered me a job, so I went to work for him for 35 years. And in this, we uh, had a farm supply business, uh, as well as a grain elevator, and the company grew. Uh, I got active in the state uh, chemical and fertilizer associations. And then when uh, NARA was formed, uh, I was lucky enough to be elected uh, to its board. And it gave me an insight I had not really seen uh, 
the problems that we were having in Georgia seemed to be magnified in a lot of other states. And we could see the handwriting on the wall of what was coming. So it really opened my eyes uh, to uh, a broader spectrum uh, to give me a better idea of our industry. You said to be there just a moment ago, NARA, which is the National Agrochemical Retailers Association, which we started, you might remember this, in 1988, I believe it was in the middle of March, and we gathered 35 directors from all across the country in a room. All of you had been elected within a territory. We brought in some cyanamid people, including their five regional managers, and uh, we all sat down to basically put this association together. Do you remember that meeting? I remember that meeting and uh, how I sat there and, and kind of listened to uh, all the dealers introduce themselves and uh, what was going on in their states. I was amazed at how proactive, uh, especially the guys from Iowa, were uh, in confronting some of these issues. Uh, it brought up some issues I had not even thought of before uh, that had not really reached Georgia, but we could see it on the horizon. Well, the issues you're talking about were for the potential for the ag chem dealers, which were the people that sold uh, pesticides and fertilizer to farmers, to go out of business because of the EPA. And uh, there were pressures from environmental groups. Uh, there were pressures from government. Um, you guys didn't have a high margin that you were making. And this Sonny Purdue that you referred to, I'd like to talk about him a little bit more later because people are going to recognize his name. Um, he apparently and you had waded into this modern era, if you will, of the pesticide industry. What was it like for you to be an ag chem dealer at that time? Well, we were just starting to get uh, a lot of uh, government regulations coming down to us as far as handling pesticides. We're flying by the seat of our pants over what to be done. Our state was uh, working with uh, uh, stormwater uh, problems, uh, what to do with it. Uh, Sonny and I had discussed, you know, the chemical business. Was it really even worth it with the low margins that we had? But... Uh, we decided, uh, especially after I went to that meeting out there, to get proactive, not only in our state, but uh, in the country. You're a mild-mannered guy. I remember you coming up to me. First time I met you was in Las Vegas, actually, when Cyanamid brought all those dealers in and had one of those huge agri-center meetings somewhere in January of 88, I believe. And you mentioned to me that you'd like to run for the board. And you won. And you were the only director from the state of Georgia, as I recall. Is that correct? Uh, we had one other. Uh, Melvin Fox was elected uh, from the South Georgia, uh, North Florida district. But he really lived in Georgia. So there were really two of us from Georgia there. We also then went on to our first real meetings of the organization. And we did get the million dollars. As one of my Iowa friends, John Hester, said, uh, we took the money and we kicked Cyanamid off of the board and we changed the name so it had nothing to do with American Cyanamid and made it the National Agrochemical Retailers Association. 
And we were an organization that was not met with much joy from the existing industry, all the way from the agricultural chemical companies down to the state associations. Do you want to comment on that? Well, uh, I always felt like our group was the redheaded stepchild of the industry. The Most of the uh, major chemical companies and all, uh, I think I heard the comment one time, if, if uh, they wanted dealers in uh, Washington, uh, they'd pay their way up there and get them to say what they wanted them to say. And we turned out to be a very independent organization with a mind of our own. Uh, I recall one of the first meetings we had uh, in Washington was an all-day session with EPA. Mm -hmm. We met from like 8 o'clock that morning to about 8 o'clock that evening. And uh, every 30 minutes to an hour, a new EPA person would come in there and tell us what regulations they were working on uh, to regulate uh, the pesticide business and virtually put us out of business. And that was probably the most eye-opening day I've ever had. I recall a guy by the name of Stephen Schatzow, who had been an administrator in EPA. Uh, I think he was head of the Office of Pesticide Programs, and he went private. And so we hired him as a consultant lobbyist, if you will, but mainly just to bring us up to speed. And um, you guys were really uh, digging hard. I mean, so was I. But it was your livelihood that... And I was still getting a paycheck at the time. But the story I want to tell that I think is the most fascinating is two years later, you said, Ken, I'd like to run for president of the organization. And uh, I'd like for you to talk to my boss. And of course, you mentioned the name Sonny Purdue. So I called Sonny, didn't know him from Adam. And had a delightful conversation with the man. And he said, yeah, he said, I got uh, total faith in Jake. He'll do a great job for you. And I will support him running for president and the years that he would need to uh, do things for the organization. That was all that was said by Sonny. From that point on, he entered politics. And of course, those of you who follow agriculture know he was U.S. Secretary of Agriculture in the Trump administration. Um, what was his pathway to move from an owner of a business in Georgia to government? Well, in, I think it was uh, 1990 when he was elected to the Senate for the state Senate for the first time. And uh, he had seen a need to get involved in, in uh, our state politics and the regulations. We had had a, a senator in Georgia introduce a uh, pesticide bounty bill that would uh, essentially let anybody come into our business and demand an environmental audit. And if they found anything wrong, then they got a percent of whatever the fine was. And that really opened the eyes of our, uh, our company. And so Sonny decided to get involved in state politics at that time. Uh, it wasn't until a few years after that that uh, he decided to run for governor. Wow. And he, Georgia was a very Democrat state at the time. He wound up being governor as a Republican, didn't he? That's correct. He started off his political career as a Democrat, but finally, and then uh, 
realized that the party was not meeting, uh, was not what he wanted. So he changed to the Republican Party, went from pro tem of the Senate to a little office in a closet. <laughs> well, I uh, I followed all of this because I just couldn't believe, you know, this. Uh, he was a veterinarian by education. He's a business owner, trucking, grain, feed, fertilizer, chemicals, things like that by what you guys sold. And then he uh, he jumped into politics. I, did he ever tell you he wished he hadn't done that? No, I think that uh, Sonny, uh, he's a very godly man, and uh, he felt like this is the way that uh, uh, God was leading him. Uh, uh, he said after much prayer, he decided, uh, you know, that's his career path. Mm-hmm. Well, I love to tell all those people in the ag industry that we were way ahead of our time. We had a U.S. Secretary of Agriculture as one of our members, uh, but of course it didn't exactly work out that way. We fought for our life, and to finish up the NARA saga, you were president when we basically ran out of money and had to uh, deal with those people who wanted us to be gone. And as I remember it, you walked into the office of the president of DuPont and sat down with him and negotiated. I remember those uh, days well. Uh, you kind of uh, walk in with your tail between your legs. Uh, in that meeting, uh, you know, NARA stood its ground. And uh, the year that I was president was the first year that uh, all the board members had to start paying their own way whenever we went to a meeting. And there was debate over how many would uh, stay with the organization or drop out. And I don't think we lost a single director. No, we did not. And uh, also to point out the truth of what took place, people were afraid they were going to lose their businesses, as was stated earlier. In our board and the industry, 35% of the dealers either closed, went broke, or merged over the course of a two-year period. That was a huge shakeout, Jake. Yes, sir. Well, from that point, you and I became friends. We became friends with a lot of people across the country. I think uh, Scott Ramstall up in South Dakota, who was very active on the board as well. And we wound up in South Dakota. You were good enough friends with him that he invited you to come up there and go pheasant hunting with them. Do you recall that adventure? I recall uh, going up there several times with him, and uh, Scott was a, a prankster. He turned, and he has been a, a very good friend, but uh, he sure liked to pull pranks on you. I remember, you remember the hotel that he checked us into? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was bad. Uh, I don't remember it, but it was built back in the 1800s, I think, and uh, had very few uh, uh, upgrades since then. Uh <laughs> We stayed in, you and I had the presidential suite. Yeah, well, I was honored with that. Yeah, and they had a, a little black and white TV with a clothes hanger as the antenna for it. <laughs> the only phone was in the uh, hallway. And uh, But, you know, one of the things I remember most about that trip was, I don't know if you remember, after we checked in, Scott told us he'd meet us down at the little uh tavern uh there in south dakota for supper and you and i walked into that uh early scott was not there yet and you would have thought that uh 
uh, we had the plague or something. Nobody came over. Everybody was watching us, but nobody came over and spoke to us. We were outsiders. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a, a difficult feeling to go through, but you know, we were breaking new ground. I, I think the funniest part of that, whether this story is actually true or just close to it, you had hunted quail and ducks and other things like that. But when you got there, the story was you had never hunted pheasants before. That's great. And this, this group of about eight or 10 of us, some used as blockers on the far end and others walking through and definitely a hierarchy of Scott's father-in-law and others within that group. They were trying to tell you, you know, you don't shoot a hen and uh, the pheasant males are very colorful. And when they flush, they kind of spook you. We get out of the car. We haven't gone a hundred feet with our guns. And there's this eruption, probably 40 birds got up and they're just shooting like crazy. And at the end of it, Scott looks at you and he said, Jake, you never fired a shot. And you said, I thought they was chickens. <laughs> I remember it. I don't remember the chicken part, but I remember standing there and never raising my gun because I was in, amazed at what uh, they said we'd be lucky to get one or two up at a time. Yeah. And then the, all of a sudden, the, uh, uh, the whole landscape was uh, pheasant. Yeah, it's just alive. I mean, it scares the hell out of you the first time you are in that. But I thought that the, the line you were able to give, and I do believe you said that. I probably did. I, I That was amazing. I but, thought they was chickens. Ha, ha, ha. They had me scared to death. I was going to shoot a hen, too, and the game warden was going to haul me off to jail. Well, we had some good times. We made a lot of difference for the ag industry your leadership and that of uh, four others that were present. We had five presidents that organization. We had a 35-member board the full time. And uh, we matured. The organization then merged with what was called National Fertilizer Solutions, which had been in existence since we st started. And we became ARA, the Ag Retailers Association. It exists today as an independent organization. So, Jake, I think the the credit you can take is that you started an organization that still exists now 35 years later. I do take pride that I, I didn't start it by myself, but that there were a lot of independent uh, uh, dealers out there, independent thinkers that uh, were able to come together and, and you know help form that organization. Uh, and I am proud of it. And you should be. And you have kept friendship with those many people. You uh, continued in the fertilizer chemical business. How long ago did you retire? Uh, it's been six years now. Six years. At age 72. But you didn't go home and sit down. You have become an author. And I wanted to talk to you about that really as the primary part of this, although the early stories are delightful. You had written one book already when we were in NARA, I think it was called Gardening in Middle Georgia. Is that close? Gardening at the Crossroads. Gardening at the Crossroads. But it had something about Middle Georgia in Middle it as Georgia, the area. Uh, gardening is what it was all about. Uh, I had taught vocational agriculture for 12 years and taught horticulture. And uh, when I went to work for Sonny, I was uh, going through all these 
papers that I had. I had taught some adult classes as well as in school and one college course. And so uh, I decided to put them all into a book. And that's where Guardians of the Crossroads uh, came from. Well, it was a nicely written book, and I thought, uh, well done. And then after you retired, you were informed me that you were going to write some more. Well, uh, what is it? What is it about writing that gives you a sense of accomplishment? Uh, writing something that uh, you can do uh, in your own thoughts and uh, on your own timetable. I'm not quick-witted like uh, you and Sonny and uh, can come up with a lot of these little uh, side things uh, on the cuff. But uh, I had uh, written another book, uh, if you remember, on uh, a humor book, A Course I Want It Today. And I wrote that while I was still working with Sonny. And of course, I want it today is what the farmer said to you when they came in and ordered fertilizer or something else. Well, I had gone out, uh, uh, a dairy farmer called me one day and uh, ordered feed. And uh, I asked him when he wanted, because usually it was uh, the next day or the next before we delivered. And uh, I asked him and he said he wanted it today. And I said today. And he said, of course, I want it today. If I wanted it tomorrow, I'd order it tomorrow. <laughs> so, yeah, I've seen that cartoon since that time. When you're in the retail sector, whether you're uh, selling clothes in a mall or whether you're selling fertilizer, chemicals, or feed, uh, the public seems to be pretty similar. I agree with that. Uh, you know, uh, it was funny whenever that book came out, uh, a lot of the stories in there were about the farmers that I dealt with here at home and the others that I'd come in contact with across the country, uh, those in agriculture uh, industry. It was amazing. I had four or five people claim to be the person in the, just about every story. <laughs> well, after you moved through those stories, you I was wondering if you might have gotten into a stash of magic mushrooms or something. You started writing a little fantasy and children's books as well. Well, my granddaughter, who was, uh, she's 20 now, so she had to have been about uh, 12 years old or so at the time. My son-in-law is in the Air Force. He's retired now, but they traveled all over the world. And we only saw them once or twice, sometimes three times a year. And we were at uh, the beach on vacation with them for a whole week. And I found I didn't have anything to talk to her about the uh, because we just, you know, talked over the phone, uh, mostly uh, emailed. But uh, she was reading a book called Ergon about uh, dragons. I didn't really care about dragons, but I found that uh, looking through the book and asking her questions, we developed a, a close relationship. And when we got home, or when I got home from vacation, my daughter sent me a copy of Ergon. Now, it's 800 pages long. I'd never read anything that long. Mm -hmm. But it's fantasy about dragons and a, a, a made-up country. Uh, and, uh, but Laurel and I, uh, uh, we would call on the phone and talk about the book. And so that got my mind and that's where Waters of Hope came out of the, all that fantasy reading that I had done, uh, with her. Cause, uh, she also put me onto a group of books that I really enjoyed called Ranger Apprentice. Uh, I think John Flanagan is the, the author, but, uh, 
there again, it, uh, she really sparked me to doing a lot of reading and that's where my fantasy books came from. Sonny Perdue's granddaughter, not just your own granddaughter, but you and Sonny Perdue's granddaughter, uh, collaborated a bit, didn't you? Well, when I finished Waters of Hope, the draft copy, I was looking for someone outside of the family to, uh, that was, the book was intended for, uh, you know, it was a children's type book, ages uh, six to uh, uh, 13, what, what it was designed for. And I asked Sonny about one of his grandsons reading it, and he suggested that I give it to Rayburn, who was an active reader, uh, Rayburn Purdue. And I knew Rayburn. Her mother had worked for us before she married the boss's son. Uh, I sent it to Rayburn. She not only read it, she wrote me a letter back and uh, even sent me a little doll of the main character, LV. And there for about uh, a year and a half, two years, we pretty much uh, became pen pals. Uh, she kind of critiqued the book for me. And then uh, as I was doing other projects, uh, I would uh, run them by her and get her input. Uh, she's now 13 years old. I think she was seven or eight at the time we started. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, that's, that's uh, you know, you go to the people that are the ones who are going to be the target audience and get them to react. But she has to be a very smart young lady to have been able to communicate with you at an adult level about childhood books at that time. Well, her vocabulary is superior to mine, just like my granddaughter's is. I kind of function on about the ninth grade level, and I think uh, Rayburn and Laurel both already in college and as far as their vocabulary is concerned. Yeah. Well, I used to feel like the sixth grade level was good for me. And, you know, I was always hoping to rise to mediocrity in everything that I did. And, uh, you know, better than nothing tends to... Uh, Describe a lot of my work through the years. Well, you've uh, illustrated that you have a fertile mind. Kind of interesting. You sold fertility, <laughs> and now you have a fertile mind. And you've put it to use time after time. You now, if I may cut to this, have written a novel. And it's public. And I have read it. And you're one of the few people that I could actually say, I read your book. And not lie to you, because I don't know how many times doing AgriTalk, people would send me a book on Thursday, and I was supposed to interview them on Friday. But mm. I've had your book since, uh, oh, last October or November, and it's called Briar Creek. Now, you've just heard that Jake talked about writing a book on gardening. Then you wrote these uh, humor, this humor book. Then you wrote these fantasy books. It's a historical fiction, it appears to me, of the settling of colonial Georgia. How did you focus on that to be a novel? Uh, I had read some books on Georgia and it being founded. Uh, and I had an interest. I'm not from Georgia, so I knew very little about Georgia history. So but I you came to, from Florida, didn't you? Tell uh, me, tell me where you came from to get to Georgia. Quincy, Florida, up in the panhandle. Actually was raised only about eight miles south of the Georgia line and uh, had gone to ABAC uh, uh, in Tifton, Georgia for two years before going to Florida uh, for my uh, BS degree. I wanted to know more about Georgia, so I started reading. Then I 
came up with this idea of a, a novel or a book. If I was going to ever write a novel, it had to be now, I thought. And uh, I wanted it to start kind of when Oglethorpe came over. And it originally uh, intended on doing the uh, uh, him coming over as one of the uh, inmates from the prison over there that were put. But then uh, one of my former students was a uh, horticulturalist for Magnolia Plantation in South Carolina and went to visit him and spent a couple of days with him there at Magnolia Plantation. And it was founded in 1680-something, I believe, and it's been in the Drayton family ever since. And uh, hearing him tell all the history of the Drayton family then come back and doing some research on them and all, I decided that my character was going to come into Georgia before Oglethorpe did. And so I brought him through Charlestown, as it was known then, and through Magnolia Plantation as an indentured servant. So that's how it kind of got started uh, as far as my ideas for, for the book. You had uh, two characters who started in Britain, um, had a terrible time uh, getting uh, on a ship and getting to the U.S. and going through the indentured servant part and becoming landowners, but yet there's hope. What I sensed in your book from the beginning, and you as a person, there's always hope. Is that true? It sure is. Uh, in fact, you, you say that. Uh, I have this uh, quotation from the Bible, Romans fifteen thirteen, uh, over my computer. Uh, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have this hope. And uh, the main character in this book, uh, he knew that uh, where he came from in England, he'd never owned land. And that's his whole thing is owning land and then having to fight to hold on to his land. And that's the whole premises. That's his thing is finding something that uh, you care that much about and then fighting to keep it. Well, the book is about his fight, really, from beginning to end. But he has alliances with people. He's an honest man. Um, he marries uh, an Indian woman. His children go various directions, extremes, if you will. You really put him in a position to where that without him being of note personally, he is definitely a historical character of the settlement of Georgia. I think that he kind of uh, exemplifies that pioneer uh, character of, of the people that settled not only Georgia, but America, uh, that independence, uh, uh, wanting their freedom, uh, and then willing to fight for it. Now, a lot of people start a book but most people never finish a book. Was it hard for you to finish this book? This book, uh, I think, is a little over 100,000 words, and I don't think I wrote that much in my whole high school career, uh, and maybe not my college either. Uh, I was not a writer at that time. I didn't have the imagination. When I started this novel uh, and decided that I wanted it to be a novel, it wasn't just going to be a little book like my others had been, I had to really discipline myself. I had to set my procedure so that uh, after I got up in the morning, had my devotionals and all and my 
thing that I would try to write two to three hours every morning. Uh, not saying I did it every day, but a lot of days uh, I'd write five or six hours when things really get to flowing. You don't want to stop. You don't want to mm-hmm. stop your thought. But uh, it took some discipline to do it. And then it took encouragement. I had some good friends that uh, I'd talked to about the book and shared some of the chapters and their encouragement really helped me too. Well, as you uh, continued on, I assume you started thinking about publication. In today's world, how hard is it to publish a book? When I started uh, writing back in 83, it was very hard to get a book published. And I fought it right on up. But this last book, this Briar Creek, turned out to be probably the easiest book I've ever published. And I did it through Amazon, uh, through their KDP program. Uh, and I would recommend it to anybody. Uh, it's very simple. And then they also, it gets on Amazon for selling, which has been uh, one of the biggest drawbacks is trying to get your book out when you don't have a broad spectrum of uh, audience to sell to. Yeah, I know some people who have published a book and ordered uh, 3,000 copies, and they still have 2,900 of them. Uh, because they, you know, they sold a few, they gave some to friends, and then they realized that uh, it was hard to get that book marketed unless they really went out and worked at it. So in your case, let's go back to this publishing. Did you do it all on computer and then send files to Amazon that they then took into the final written word printed on the page? Uh, Yeah, you have to do all the setup yourself. Now, you can hire people to do it, but uh, I did all the setup myself, uh, and then you have to put it in a a KD uh, PDF form, Mm -hmm. uh, and then you send it to them, and then you get to review it uh, before they print it. Of course, they they print on demand, so you don't have to buy 3,000 copies or 1,000 copies. You can, uh, they allow you to purchase some at a reduced price, but then you set your own price. Uh, they charge for the printing and then they charge a selling fee. So you've got to set your price above that if you want to, you know, make anything on it. But, so if you look at Amazon as a bookseller, which they originally were, right, they're still pretty damn good at making money. Oh, yes, sir. Yeah, I don't, they're going to make more than you are as, as I am as an author. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I, I, you know, don't have the name so, uh, or the outreach, but uh, it is gratifying to see your book in print and uh, and also to see it on Amazon where people, they say, where can you get it? You can tell them where they can go get it. Well, the name of the book is Briar Creek, Briar, B-R-I-E-R. And the author, the man I've been talking with is Jacob Redman, Jake Redman, R-E-D-M-O-N. And uh, this book is definitely a joy to read. I found it to be progressive from beginning to end. There's not more than one or two little things I could say in the whole book that didn't come to a, an ending, not necessarily a satisfying ending, but an ending. You tied it together from beginning to end, which to me, I would compliment you on because I think that's hard to do. That's one thing I had to struggle with uh, is uh, to keep focused on that. And here again, I had some uh, good friends that kind of 
had had read part of it and would make comments and uh especially to stay true to form and and keep me not uh putting something out of date uh i there at the beginning when they're in england uh i had in there of them using uh their nightsticks uh the policeman and come to find out in 1690 something in england they didn't have policemen it was all uh private security and uh one of my friends brought that out to me so i had to go back and do a lot more research oh i can see that that would be uh, very challenging to get it all right if you look at the historical shows on television uh, now they have people that they hire specifically to try to make it to where that it's as it was rather than as we are today and pushing that backward and i'm sure with language much the same you wrote this in plain english did you ever think about trying to write it with the dialect of the day uh i attempted that uh by reading some of the english uh that had been written, but then you get so focused on trying that that you lose. I lost my creative aspect of thinking of ideas. I was more or less trying to come up with the right English word to use. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, it, and I've got several books that were written by people from that time. And uh, it gets where it's harder, to, harder for me to write in that than it is to be a creative. So I chose to go to creative way. Well, I'm sure there are various people who want to read it in the way it was, but most of us want to jump it to where we can understand it ourselves today. And I noticed that even in my watching of Amazon um, series and Netflix on TV, that I would prefer they speak in an English that I can understand rather than an English that may reflect what they were stating at the time. And I think the same in the words that you have written. Well, the book is Briar Creek. The author is Jacob Redman. Jake, it's been a joy to be your friend from that first moment I met you in Las Vegas in 1988 on through the trials and tribulations of our lives. Uh, They haven't all been good. You and I both lost a son in the interim of all of our lives. We've both (laughs) gone from one marriage to another. And I'm happy in mine. And I believe that Miss Gale has made you happy in yours. Very much so. So with all of that, uh, I hope you sell a lot of these books, but promotion is a key, and I'm proud to give you a little of it here. The program is called Better Than Nothing. Jake's book is called Briar Creek, along with others that he's written before. Jake Redmond, thank you for talking with me this morning. Ken, it's been an uh, honor to be on your program this morning and to know you. I consider you a a good friend, uh, along with uh, many on that board. Uh, And uh, they've certainly, y'all have certainly influenced my life. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. I hope you stayed awake for most of it and liked what you heard. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send an email to ken at betterthannothing.com. Nothing is spelled N-U-T-H-I-N. If you can't remember that, send it to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. As I now turn 73 years old, I've decided to have two kinds of days. 
good ones, and great ones. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.